Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at CalEndow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, with the primary elections less than a month away, we check in with a Fresno County clerk about how to ensure your vote is counted. And Fresno poet Mai Dervang is recognized as a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her collection, Yellow Rain. But first, an excerpt from The Other California, KVPR's podcast about the small towns that define the San Joaquin Valley. This week's episode highlights Taft in the Dusty Hills, southwest of Bakersfield. Named after the 27th U.S. president, Taft was incorporated in 1910. Of course, it's changed tremendously since those early frontier years, but one thing remains the same. It's still an oil town through and through, and people who live here now want it to stay that way. KVPR's Carrie Klein reports. Taft might be small, but on this Friday night, it's buzzing. It's cruise night when car collectors show off their antique pickup trucks and custom rat rods. People gather on the sidewalks like it's a parade. But just before the cars show up, something else catches the crowd's attention, a standoff in front of the old Fox Theater. Think cowboy boots and 10-gallon hats, bandits in all black, and a sheriff's posse wearing gold stars. Let's make sure those guys ain't sneaking in on us anywhere around here. The tension builds, and then... Let's get them, boys! The bullets are blank, of course, and the whole shootout is a game. It's a preview, in fact, of an Old West-themed festival that happens here every five years. Brian Selman's playing the sheriff. But it's just a really good time for everybody to get together and promote the town's history and the uh, oil industry. Um, The oil industry. The festival is called Oil Dorado because this city was built on top of Midway Sunset, the state's most productive oil field. It's the epicenter of California's oil industry, which is actually the seventh largest in the country. Another fun fact, the gusher that led to this city's founding inspired the movie There Will Be Blood. Today, the economy here is still built on oil. Walking down the street from Black Gold Brewing Company, I hit monuments of drilling equipment on every corner, even a replica pump jack outside the Best Western. And locals feel everything here owes its existence to the stuff. It made me who I am. I grew up here. Oil raised my family, gave me an education. It's in your toothbrush, it's in your floss, in your basketballs, in your soccer balls. Oil means everything. Oil is a way of life. That's public relations expert Chris Lowe, dental hygienist Julie Ortlieb, and Josh Bryant, a city council member and school district executive. They all came downtown for the shows. But the future of oil is murky. Extraction and processing are major sources of greenhouse gas emissions, and petroleum-powered cars and trucks fuel the state's chronic air pollution. As a result, Governor Gavin Newsom has promised no in-state oil and gas production, period, by 2045. And locals are angry, including Renee Hill. Taft is very upset by what's going on in Sacramento. Renee used to be on the city council. Now she sells antiques and flowers on the main drag. On big nights, like this one, she rolls a fire pit out front. She loves this town. I'm a Taft girl. My dad was a doctor here. I grew up here. But a future without oil? That might be progress for the climate, but it's hard for Renee to imagine. Taft will shrivel. I mean, I can't fathom what we'll do for ourselves. It's not just the billions of dollars in county revenue, the tens of thousands of well-paying jobs, or even the millions in oil property taxes that fund Taft schools. Standing at a massive bronze statue of an oil derrick downtown, Taft Mayor Dave Knorr points out that oil companies support community events and workers mentor high school students in a college prep program called the Oil Technology Academy. The producers and the companies that are a part of it are much more than employers. 
they're community partners and they have their fingerprints on every beneficial program that takes place in this valley as well as in this community. Many in Taft and beyond feel California needs the industry going forward. So many, in fact, that when oil officials from Sacramento agreed to come to a county supervisor's meeting in early 2020, record numbers of Kern residents crammed into the Bakersfield chambers and spilled onto the sidewalk. Dozens spoke in support of the industry. A meeting that would normally last two hours stretched on for more than six. One speaker was Les Clark, who, let's just say, isn't very fond of Newsom. I call him Governor Nuisance. He's a longtime oil man in Taft who now leads the Independent Oil Producers Alliance. He spoke to me after the meeting. I, mean, I don't like it, rhetoric. I think it's a foolishness for people to think that they're going to do away uh, with fossil fuel. A lot of people I talk to use words like foolish to describe the state's take on oil. Some of the $65 million that Newsom proposes to support the industry in transition would train displaced oil workers to abandon wells. The mayor calls that an absolute insult because the industry's already been doing that for years. Similarly, Fred Holmes, the owner of a small oil producer and a well-known Taft philanthropist, argues that ditching California's petroleum is just nimbyism. We'll be exporting the industry, he says, to countries with fewer environmental protections and civil rights. Us citizens, including yourself, we're not going to give up our energy. Are you going to give up your energy? <laughs> no, you're going to support Saudi Arabia. Something else I learned, Kern is also the state's largest producer of renewables. It's home to a quarter of our solar and more than half of our wind power. But will the state really help Taft transition from oil to green energy? The mayor is skeptical at best. That lip service about replacing the jobs that are being lost is just that, it's lip service. Those jobs and the economic impact to local communities are just as intermittent as the energy they produce. For now, Taft leaders spend a lot of time in Sacramento, lobbying for a longer timeline to keep the industry, their livelihood, alive. For The Other California, I'm Carrie Klein in Taft. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Staying with the other California, host Alice Daniel recently spoke with writer and journalist Mark Arax about how hard it is for him to define this place he still calls home, the San Joaquin Valley. Here's their conversation. Welcome, Mark. I'm so glad you're here. Nice to see you, Alice. I wanted to talk to you first about how I first got to know you, or know of you. You were giving a talk, I think it was with the one of the Fresno Rotary Clubs, and you had just moved back to the San Joaquin Valley. You'd been working for the LA Times, and you had been working in LA. And I think you, you mentioned this conversation that you'd had with your editors about wanting to be a foreign correspondent and go somewhere really different, far away, but instead, they sent you back to a place you know so well, the San Joaquin Valley. And you said to the audience, well, you know, it wasn't a foreign land, but it was a place that is so different from any other place in the United States that it is in some ways like going to another country, which is what my friend Mike in the first episode said. You know, you come over the grapevine and you're in a totally different place. And you said that, and it sort of helped shape my view of the San Joaquin Valley. I'd only been here a couple of years, probably. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, you got a, you have a very good memory, because uh, I, I, re I don't remember that particular uh, night, but I, I remember talking about that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was going to apply for the Jerusalem Bureau and, and, and report from the Middle East, and I ended up in Fresno. Um, but when you cross that that divide coming from Southern California to the, the valley, you go you know down the mountain, you're really crossing a Mason-Dixon line. I mean, it's a whole different place. And um, the valley isn't just 
Well, it's geographically exiled from the rest of California, but that geographical exile translates into almost a psychological exile as well. And that's what so much, so many of my books have dealt with is why this place feels apart and, and how it's established its own kind of code of doing things, you know, to its detriment in, in a large part. It's a, it's, it is a, another place. And you actually said that you tried to treat it that way when you came back as a reporter because you knew it so well from having been born here and having grown up here. You had to look at it as if you were a foreign correspondent. Yeah, I think the writer's voice and that writer's voice that I developed as a journalist and then took it on in, into essays and history and reportage and all that is, is it was the voice that helped me to imagine that I was writing to uh, people who weren't from here and I was writing uh, this place as if it was a foreign land. And I was born here. But back then, it still was foreign to me, and it remains foreign to me. You know, I've, I've written more words about the San Joaquin Valley than probably anyone who's ever written uh, about the valley. Um, but there's still things I'm trying to puzzle out, and it's about place. And that's what I loved about your, your series. Um, it, it's examining place, and you're different than me. You came from the outside, and so I was listening. I mean, some of the places you were going to are the very places I had been, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But you brought your own eye to them, okay? And so it was delightful to hear those stories told by someone else. Well, well let's talk about that for a minute because you have an idea of how people perceive place, right? You can perceive place as someone who was born there and lived there their whole lives, and therefore they're linked to it. They're rooted, they're rooted in it as if they were a tree. You know, it's, it's part of their existence. Um, and then there's other ways of, of looking at a place, and one of those is the way I look at the San Joaquin Valley as someone who came here 20 years ago. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Tell me. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've, I've, I've played with this idea. Um, you know, as, uh, um, I think there's probably other ways of looking at it, but by my count, they're like, they're, there are three basic ways that humans connect to place. And, and each one is a way of living. I mean, the first one is that, well, place is movable. You know, you, you, you can t take home with you and create home wherever your place might, wherever that place might be. And in, in that way, place is kind of no big deal. Losing a place is no big tragedy. Place is not only movable, it's disposable. Then there's that second notion of place, which I think defines your connection to this place. It's the way a historian or a journalist or a social scientist might see it with this kind of disinterested eye. Place becomes your subject, and as a subject, it's kind of separate from your soul, you can live in a place, become a student of it. You find some measure of accord with that place because it is your home and your laboratory. But place is never you, and the changes that come to it are never taken personally. You kind of live above that fray. Right. There's some objectivity to the way I'm looking at it right. versus the way you look at it, which is far more subjective. It is, and that's what I've had to fight because the third notion of place is one of deep roots and intimacy a direct connection between a person and place right down to the earth. You know, I am bound to this place. You can't separate me from it. And as the land is being remade, for instance, you ask yourself, where is my place? I'm tied to this place. And yet as it abandons itself, its old notion of itself, is it also abandoning me? And so does it allow a place for me to exist? And I guess what I want to explore in, in my books, even as I've gone from Fresno to the whole of California, I'm still exploring the notion that a place is not simply geography, but a spiritual relationship to that geography. And, and I think it's, it's this relationship that gets lost as the land becomes transformed. So, yeah. What do you mean by the place has abandoned you? Well, your old haunts, okay? They're gone. I used to hang out in the fig orchards of northwest Fresno. They don't exist anymore. Um, I planted a fig tree in the last house I had just to remind myself of the figs. So 
the the places change. And, you know, you could go back east. I mean, I lived back east. I went to school back east. And you could talk to folks who can who can basically traverse the land and say, this is the land exactly how my grandfather and great-grandfather saw it. It's been preserved. This place is constantly being remade. And, and that's what I'm exploring all the time is, is those revisions. And they're, they're like gashes in the land. And does it affect you on a personal and a spiritual level? It, it does. I'm trying to figure out, okay, if, if it's changed this much in my lifetime, where's it headed? And I have to say, I feel the same way as someone who's lived here 20 years. I actually, and I wonder if you feel this way too, but I feel very defensive about this place, especially in terms of the way it's changing. I look at the warehouses that, you know, house all the stuff that we order online and all of the suburbs that are being built. And there's something that's so heartbreaking about that as it as this place becomes so much more homogenous like the rest of America. And it it also makes me think back to this comment I, I told you that people have made to me about the San Joaquin Valley that, you know, having heard the podcast, they've said to me, oh, this is this is your love letter to the San Joaquin Valley. And I find that response so challenging. It, it, first of all, it seems superficial, but also it's not a love letter. It's more of a, a defensiveness, like a, a little manifesto that I'm sharing with the world that, you know, it's part of California. It matters to California. And the people who work here work so hard and have really, as we've seen in the podcast, interesting life. So it's this sort of defensiveness that I get about the land not being cared for or people not paying attention to the beauty that's here, maybe beneath the rubble, maybe beneath, you know, the ugliness, but the beauty that is here. And it, it kind of makes me angry. And I wonder if you have that same response or if for you it's more of a a feeling of jadedness about the loss of so many things in the Valley. Well, I don't think the, the, the series has been a love letter. I think it's got way more layers than that. And um, so uh, if someone told me that about my work, I'd be upset, actually. But um, I think when you have this immediacy uh, that you gain by being so close to a place, you, you also have the, the the downside that you bring sometimes too much heat and too much passion to the subject. And so um, you're always trying to get some distance so you have a perspective and a kind of a rain, a rain on your anger and maybe even a check on your heart as you're writing it. And yet... Um, as I've moved beyond journalism to other forms, um, you, you, you're allowed to kind of declare that to the, to the reader that, um, that it's a messy thing, okay? That, 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 that when you dig your heels into native ground, it can be messy. This also reminds me of a comment you made right before we came in here about how stories about the indigenous people who lived here did not, we don't hear those stories. And these are, the, so what does it feel like for indigenous people to live in a place that has been taken from them? This is the problem. Um, when a place is conceived in genocide, as California was, um, the whole original storytellers are gone. Their story's been erased. So for me, the story of this place, not just the valley, but California itself, uh, for me, it begins with Soroyan. I mean, that's that's my original source. And, you know, I had the fortune as a 15, 16-year-old kid of going to visit him um, and, um, and, and and seeing his life. And, you know, and, and sometimes I'd ask a, a decent question and I'd get an interesting answer from him. And we're, we're talking about the writer, William Soroyan. Right. That's right. And so, so yeah, there's, there's, and, you know, so each, each, each writer borrows from the previous writer. So there was Soroyan, and then who else? I mean, you've got Haslam coming next. He, sadly, he just passed. Um, then you've got my generation of folks, you know. So, yeah, we're, we're all trying to build on this narrative. 
this place is so much of it you have to dig in actually in the soil to kind of figure out because this is the place that wants to forget its past and its past is a very violent one i mean what was done to the land here has never been done to this large of a piece of earth ever in human history the change the, the transformation that took place here the, the erasing of the lakes and the marshes, the flattening of the earth, the moving of that snow melt, you know, from the original rivers to dams and ditches and, and you know, and canals and, and, um, and then the engineering and the kind of agriculture that was done. Uh, you know, ge geologists say this is the most altered landscape by human hand in human history. And we don't know that story. That's the story I've, I've been trying to tell. And then when you see the people who came here originally, I mean, most of them came from the Confederate South and they brought with them their racial animus, okay? And so this place became um, a place where essentially we transplanted the plantation here. And so you had restricted real estate covenants and redlining and a kind of racism that still exists today. We've never really wiped it out of our, you know, our, our kind of DNA. So as you were exploring all these places, yeah, it was the other California and there, there was aspect to that there was, there was a, a love letter, but you were also exploring the depths of this stuff. You went to Fairmead. You saw how African-Americans came to Fairmead as the promised land. And yet they were, they were locked out of the city of Madera. They went there, and now and Chowchilla and Chowch and Chowchilla was a, a, a very racist place, okay. Um, and now, those that are left are fighting for water to survive because, as the almond orchards are surrounding them and putting their wells deeper, they're sucking dry their more shallow residential wells. So, when you hear the phrase "the other California," what comes to mind for you? Um. I think the aspects of this place that are singular, that are anomalies. Um, you know, when I did my first book, I was it was about my father's murder, and I was looking into the, the place. Um, I was trying to explain how Fresno had, you know, these, you know, it, it would come up time and again in these national stories of like corruption. You know, the top half of the police department in the 1920s during Prohibition was indicted for being involved with a bunch of bootleggers. I mean, it was national news. Our opium dens were the busiest opium dens in, in America. Our, our, our um, dens of prostitution, you know, were run by the police department. In fact, the, the chief of police, Hank Morton, in the 1970s was married to the biggest madam in Fresno. So I was trying to figure out what is it about this place that's the other? I mean, it has this kind of um, this kind of arrested sense of propriety. What's right? It doesn't operate by the same rules as other places, and I think that goes back to this kind of geographical exile, which creates a psychic exile, which creates a kind of ethical exile. That's really interesting. What? What makes the other California exiled in the first place? Is it because of the people who live here, the farmland? Is it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's, a, first of all, we're a separate valley surrounded by mountains. The people who came here, like my people, were often leaving genocide and pogroms and all this kind of stuff. They didn't want government, okay? Government to them meant massacres and genocide. So they come here and they want to be free and liberated. They don't want government. And the folks from the South, they didn't want government either. So you had this weird mixture from the get-go. And then refugees. Refugees and everything else. Who have else. been through, yes. no. as you said, genocides and horror and wars. And, and so they've all shaped— But that's their relationship to a government. It is. And they, so, so they didn't want government. And we're still having that fight today. And um, they, they want to be left alone— um, and it's the reason why we, after 35, 40 years of struggling to bring clean air here, we have failed. You know, we're, we're these last couple of years, we're breathing, you know, some of it has to do with the wildfires, but some of it has to do with the dairies, these huge dairies. We're breathing the worst air in the country still. 
it's not a place that I necessarily want my children to live in. My daughter's already left, and my sons may too. The poverty, it's got some of the most concentrated poverty, if not the most, in the United States. So there's all there's all these things that are, that are broken about it. And, and, I, and I now realize why, as a kid, Soroyan told me that he loved and hated this place. I mean, he lived half the year in Paris, and yet he'd come back to Fresno every year around fair time to go play the ponies and watch the ponies at the Fresno Fair. But then also, he came in summer because of the fruits, okay? and the crops. And so side by side, we see these plantations of cotton and, and these huge farms, and yet we still have places like Fowler and Selma and Kingsburg, where the river runs through the land and it's beautiful and it's romantic. It's kind of a Jeffersonian way of living. I remember going out and visiting Moss, Masamoto not too long ago after after the, the, the smoke of this last wildfire lifted. And we just had this pleasant lunch beside his 100-year-old vines. And the raisins were still out on the ground. And this was the way his father had farmed. And it's the way my grandfather and my father had farmed before they left the farm. And I envied him because we sold the farm before I was born. And he still had his farm and he was passing it on to his children. And that is the love of this place beside the hate of this place. It's the dichotomy that you've, you've just described that makes many of us think, okay, well, if I left, there are things about it that I would really, really miss that don't exist anywhere else in the United States. And meanwhile, there are good reasons to leave because of all the, the problems you've mentioned. Is there something about mythologizing this place that intrigues you? I remember when the first episode of this podcast came out, I sent it to you, and you were very kind about it, but you also expressed a sentiment of, you know, let's make sure we don't mythologize this place, which hopefully I haven't. But it got me thinking a lot about mythologizing places and what that means and whether myths can actually help a place or hurt a place. Because in some ways, as I've said, my sort of effort with this podcast is to let people see some of the beauty. And, and much of the beauty comes out of sort of awful stories it, it that, does. you know, where people have had to deal with, as we've said, genocide and, and other things. But but beauty has emerged. and. And that's what I've wanted people to see. So I think, well, if people don't have some idea of the beauty, which sometimes equals myth, what do they have to hold on to? That's right. I mean, the valley is kind of an ugly beauty. That's how I've described it. Um, I've tried to defang the myth of this place in California. That was what the Dreamland was all about, was looking at the sale of the myth to bring people here, the myth of the orange that created Los Angeles, okay. Um, so myths are powerful things, and, and I think we constantly have to explore them, ex explore um, their power of allurement, their power to transform, their power to imagine, okay. We invented this place based on a myth, okay, and, and the myth began with the gold rush, um, and so as you're examining all that, you're also seeing that the, 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 the power of that myth can lead to tragedy. And that's where we're at now, because now we have a force called climate change. It's bearing down on us. And yet we still are embracing this myth of California that we can continue to grow. We could spread the farmland even more. I mean, in the 10 driest years in California that we've had, we've grown permanent farm acres in the San Joaquin Valley by nearly 700,000 acres. That's kind of a communal madness, ignoring this, this beast that's kind of bearing down on us. So yes, myth is powerful. And what I meant when I wrote you was just that, that um, it's the beauty in what you're doing. You're going and visiting, like you went to Huron, you visited Ray, Leon, the mayor there, who's doing these incredible things. 
you know, he's also butting up against the myth that brought so many people across the border to Huron. Knife Fight City, picking the crops. And now, what do they do when those crops disappear? He's trying to remake that place. He's trying to remake the myth of Huron. So what is it that you, as a native son of the San Joaquin Valley, what is it that you want people to know about the other California that you could summarize in a couple sentences because they could go read your books and they should if they haven't. But if you were just talking to a friend who had never been here, what would you want them to know about this place? What is it for you? What is the sort of underlying theme that makes it home to you, makes it the other California to you? I don't know. I feel sometimes a kind of alienation from the place. I think what makes it home to me is family and the history. You know, my father's blood was spilled here. He was murdered. Uh, my grandfather had raisin, raisin, the crop, he called it the crop, the raisin ranches here. Um, so all that keeps me rooted, and yet there's not a day goes by that I think I, I threaten to leave this place, you know, just for the sake of my lungs, if nothing else. So I, I don't know. I think um, it, it's, there's not a two-sentence way to describe this place. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. I've been privileged to tell its stories. It really is a foreign land. It's a, it's a, it's a unique canvas, okay? Um, and that's because of all the people who have come here. And so I'm still trying to, to figure it out and I'll probably die trying to figure it out. I think you just did that. I think you just did summarize it beautifully. Yeah, I don't know. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Yeah, it's hard. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Earlier this week, author and Fresno State professor Mai Dervang was named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry for her book, Yellow Rain. Vang was a guest on Valley Edition back in November to talk about this work, which combines archival research and declassified government documents to examine the biological warfare committed against Hmong refugees at the end of the Vietnam War. I checked in with her again this week to get her reaction to receiving this prestigious recognition. How did you learn that you were a Pulitzer finalist? I was finishing up a class and as I was getting ready to kind of, you know, put stuff away and things, my partner shared the news with me and I was just, I was just shocked and surprised that I had been named a finalist. You know, in many ways, this collection is as much a a work of documentary as it is a work of poetry. It really blends those, those lines. And so I would imagine it is particularly poignant for you to be recognized uh, by a prize that is so often associated with journalism. Yeah, yeah. I was really thrilled to be able to receive that recognition alongside uh, the work of journalists who have done incredible work to share stories, tell truths, and to just be able to bring this, this to, to wider audiences. So for me to be recognized with journalists is just an amazing um, honor. So when you were on the show back in November, we talked about your motivation to take on this topic um, and your drive to dispel the false narrative about what happened to Hmong refugees um, as they fled Laos at the end of the war. But for those listening who are not familiar with that history, the history that you reveal and, and re-explore in Yellow Rain, can you briefly explain what happened? Yeah, sure. Um, so Yellow Rain was believed to be a biological chemical weapon that was used against Hmong refugees as they fled from Laos following the end to the U.S. wars in Vietnam and Laos. 
And over time, what eventually happened as Yellow Rain was being investigated and as it was creating this kind of global controversy about what it was, the Hmong stories and testimonies of Yellow Rain consequently were invalidated and dismissed. And so the, the work of my book is attempting to challenge the dismissing of those Hmong stories and really try to push against the erasure of this history. So Yellow Rain invites readers to rethink a narrative that they had been told by the American government. And, and I think in doing so, it stands alongside works like the 1619 Project that look at American history from a new perspective. I'm wondering, do you see Yellow Rain within that category of, of literature? Yeah, I would hope to see that it can belong to that category in some way. Um, you know, a lot of these works that you just mentioned, a lot of these projects, I, I they, they are really things that I admire and I have looked to for sources of inspiration. And I think that when it comes to what we're seeing right now in literature and, and in the attempt to rewrite or to reclaim these, these narratives, these lost histories, and maybe even in some ways to try to resurrect some of these wounds of history. I think that this is, this is about reckoning in many ways. It's about you know, coming to the point where you can put a lot of these stories back on trial so that they can be reinvestigated from a new lens in a new era with a new voice that is, is offering a kind of counter narrative. And so I think it's a really exciting time for many writers who are pushing toward that in their work. And I'm excited for what the future might bring with more writers who want to try documentary poetry or examine a piece of history that maybe has been overlooked and bring that into greater light. So the Pulitzer Committee noted that this recognition is, is particularly remarkable given that the Hmong people had no formal written language until the 1950s. You have, that has to feel really powerful for you to be the first Hmong American to be to be recognized by by this award. Yeah, absolutely. It's an incredible, like a tremendous honor again, as I was saying. And when I read that quote, I, I just found it, I was so surprised by that. I was kind of, you know, taken a little bit aback by it. But it, it was it was sort of a an interesting thing to say and to to offer about how far my community has come since then and to see where where we are at now and to see that there is obviously still more work ahead, but that we are at a time now where someone like me, a daughter of Hmong refugees, can be part of shaping the, the present and the future of literature and poetry in this country is just absolutely amazing. And, you know, I should, I should know you, we started this by talking about how you learned about the Pulitzer, uh, which, you know, was, you were teaching and, you know, you are an accomplished educator as well as an accomplished poet. And I'm just wondering how, how are your students reacting to this? I mean, it must be really inspirational for them. Yeah, it's been great to see their reactions and just to receive their encouragement and their support. Um, yesterday was the last day of classes for the semester and my students were so keen to want to congratulate me and just to, you know, give a moment to offer me shout outs. And it was just really wonderful and inspiring to see how encouraging they were and how many of them had, well, actually one of the students asked me, um, and she said, did you ever think you were going to see yourself here when you were our age? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I could not have imagined that I would be here now. And, and it gives them a chance to also see their own potential as well, um, knowing that I you know, was born and raised here in Fresno and you know, this is my community. And for me to be able to work with a lot of these students was just amazing and inspire them and help allow them to see that their potential is just as bright and abundant as mine is. And yeah, it was just, it was wonderful. In thinking back on the history you write about and how far you've come, 
chronologically speaking, it's not that long. And you may not have imagined this for yourself, but what do you think your ancestors would say, knowing that you not only told their story, but you have told it with such skill and such craftsmanship that it has received this high of an honor? I think that they would be, first of all, surprised that, you know, being a Hmong person who has, you know, been through this war and been displaced um, and, and, and living in exile, um, I think there would be a kind of surprise that, that people would even want to hear our stories. And so I think that that would be kind of a thing, a, sort of a first reaction would be, oh, people, they care about Hmong people? Or they want to. They want to know. People want to know what happened to us, um, and I think that that would be the initial thought. But I think all, overall, you know, I, I imagine that they would be extraordinarily proud and really grateful to know that that their losses will be remembered and that these histories won't be lost. Well, I've been talking with Fresno poet and, and Fresno State English professor. My Dervang uh, about being named finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Ballots for the June 7th primary election hit mailboxes this week in Fresno County. With the election less than a month away, I talked with James Coos, Fresno County Clerk and Registrar of Voters, about the process to ensure your vote is counted and the new technology now available to make voting easier for people with disabilities. So the process of casting a vote in Fresno County has changed quite a bit since the passage of the Voters' Choice Act. Obviously, we've had several elections under this new model, but I I believe that there's still a lot of people out there with questions as voters get used to this process. So just briefly, can can you explain how it works? Under the Voters' Choice Act, every active registered voter in Fresno County will receive their ballot through the mail. Now, that's actually true across the whole state now, but it was a unique part of the Voters' Choice Act and does apply in Fresno County. When the voter does receive their vote by mail ballot, they're going to get that basically 26, 28 days ahead of the election. So they've got a lot of time to complete their ballot at home. Now, once the voter has completed their vote by mail ballot, they have the option of how they want to return it. Now, they could just put the ballot into their envelope, sign the envelope, seal it, and then return it in the mail postage free. We also have ballot drop boxes in Fresno County, 68 of them spread across the county that we pick up every day. Then the final option for returning that vote by mail ballot is to return it in person, to actually bring it into one of our vote centers or our downtown Kern Street office and hand it in yourself. Now, beyond just vote by mail, you can vote in person And you can actually now request to receive your ballot electronically, although you do have to return it in paper format. That electronic version is called Remote Accessible Vote by Mail. It is universal across the state, and any voter can access that by uh, filling out the card on the back of their counter voter information guide or by going to our website and requesting it or even calling us. And then in-person has opened already. It opened on May 9th down at our Kern Street office, and we'll also open at our vote centers on May 28th, and then all of our vote centers, so 10 vote centers, 11 vote centers will be open on May 28th, but we'll also have all of our vote centers, over 50 vote centers, open beginning on June 4th. So lots of things there. Lots (laughs) going on. So, and I understand the county has also introduced some new technology uh, that's uh, designed to expand voting access for people with disabilities. Tell me a little bit about that. So at all of our vote centers, we have at least three accessible voting devices. And these are large tablets attached to a uh, printer, also with manual uh, inputs that kind of look like a, a video game controller. And those accessible devices can be used by anyone, but for 
persons who have a manual uh, issue or a, an issue with uh, particularly uh, visual disabilities or, or issues with that, uh, those devices will allow a voter to vote independently. Our workers only need to type in a code because they are secured and then get the correct ballot for the voter on the device. And then from that point on, voters can vote independently there. Also, technologically speaking, one of the things that we do have available is that remote accessible vote by mail, which is a way for us to deliver a ballot electronically to a voter. The voter can then fill it out using their own assistive devices at home. They'll then have to print it out and return it to us using materials that we provide. They'll still need to sign their name on that uh, envelopes before we will accept the uh, ballot back. And so multiple different ways that we can assist with uh, voters that could use some assistance with accessibility. What have you been seeing in terms of voter turnout? Obviously, all of these innovations have been made in order to make it easier to vote. Are, are people voting more? So it's very good evidence that the Voters' Choice Act has resulted in an increase in participation in those counties that have taken up the Voters' Choice Act. There are five counties that did in 2018, we had 15 total in 2020, and now I believe we're at 26 or 28 counties across the state. And in those 15 counties uh, in 2018, 2020, there was a measurable increase, not a gigantic one, we're talking two, 3% out of total registration participating. But that is linked directly to the VCA, not just that it was a very important election in November 2020, but there is a difference between those 15 counties and the rest of the state. So uh, we have seen that. And we do see a, a big uptake in vote by mail usage in Fresno County. We've gone from 65% to approximately 90% usage. Um, so that's a wonderful thing. Voters have that opportunity to spend the time at home filling out the ballot as they want, not being rushed or having to wait in line at our vote center. So great uh, improvements there. So, you know, I have to, to ask, there are people that are concerned that these changes could lead to uh, less secure elections, um, concerns about things like ballot harvesting, you know, people drop collecting ballots and dropping them off. What is your response to that? Well, first I'll say that there's no such things about harvesting in California. Any return of a vote by mail ballot is allowed. Ballot harvesting is a pejorative that's used in other states to describe that vote by mail return process. And frankly, Candidates do it all over the state and parties do it all over the state, helping voters to return their BBM ballots. The key, as far as that return process goes, is that the voter must be responsible for their own ballot security. And I mentioned already that when you complete your vote by mail ballot, the voter must place the ballot in the envelope provided, sign the envelope and seal it. Now I'm saying that in a specific way, sign it first and seal it because Fresno has actually added two new features to our return envelopes beginning in 2022. We've increased voter confidentiality by moving our signatures to a spot that will be covered by the envelope flap. So when you return your vote by mail ballot, your signature just isn't out there for anyone to see. So we've improved voter confidentiality that way, but it also means you have to sign first and then seal your envelope. The other thing that we've added to our voters is for accessibility purposes, we've added signature guides around the signature spot so that voters with manual or visual disabilities will have the opportunity or ability to determine the proper location to sign. And again, those are covered up by the envelope, by the flap, so there's no opportunity for someone to see a ballot there. And so improved security and confidentiality there. VBM really is the most secure way of returning your ballot. Uh, ballots go into the US Postal Service, or so a federal employee that's handling them, or directly to one of our staff, either through the Dropbox or through the uh, vote centers or downtown office. And then every signature is reviewed before that ballot is counted. So there's an actual comparison against your signature on the envelope versus your signature in your registration record. 
And that's both a computerized and a human check that we have observers watching at all times. So really a very secure process overall. Okay, this is an incredibly frivolous question and I'm just gonna have to trust that I'm not the only one who has wondered it. Um, I really miss getting the I voted sticker. Is there a way to get your sticker? So obviously you can go into one of our vote centers and return your vote by mail ballot there and we'll be happy to give you a sticker, whether it be at a vote center or at our downtown office. You can go and vote in person, getting a ballot at a vote center and at the end of that process, we'll give you your I voted sticker. We have looked at delivering the I voted sticker with your vote by mail ballot. And that adds a fair bit of cost actually, because it's not just two things you're adding to the, to the, the system there. You have to add not just the sticker, but a secure way of providing that sticker that can't possibly damage anything else that's in the envelope. So it's actually surprisingly expensive to, to add the sticker to the package. Well, I, I appreciate you indulging my very silly question. Uh, certainly the, the least important part of this very important process. But um, before I let you go, I understand there are some employment opportunities with the county ahead of the June primary. Is that right? There are. We are still looking for election workers and election outreach coordinators who are the leaders at our vote centers or who provide assistance for language and other resources. That's why it's election outreach coordinator. Uh, we can get to those or apply for those via the FresnoCountyJobs.com. And while we have our kind of minimums, we're always looking for bilingual speakers who can automatically qualify as an election coordinator and receive a pay bump. And anyone who's really interested in working and helping out, assisting your fellow citizens in this voting process, we really encourage anyone to, to come down and, and work out. It's a nice way to get a little extra cash or even start to maybe even begin a career sometime 20 years ago, many years ago. I started out as a poll worker and here I am the county clerk. Well, here we are at a moment when voting is more important than ever. And on behalf of the voters of Fresno County, I just wanna thank you for your service and thank you for everything you do to make sure that our votes are, are easy to cast and are secure. I've been talking with James Coos, Fresno County Clerk and Registrar of Voters. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Kathleen. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mati Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.